At daybreak, the council of the elders of the people, both the chief priests and the teachers of the law, met together, and Jesus was led before them. If you are the Messiah, they said, tell us. Jesus answered, If I tell you, you will not believe me, and if I asked you, you would not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. They all asked, Are you then the Son of God? He replied, You say that I am. Then they said, Why do we need any more testimony? We have heard it from his own lips. Then the whole assembly rose and led him off to Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We have found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar and claims to be Messiah, a king. So Pilate asked Jesus, Are you the king of the Jews? You have said so, Jesus replied. Then Pilate announced to the chief priests in the crowd, I find no basis for a charge against this man. But they insisted. He stirs up the people all over Judea by his teaching. He started in Galilee and has come all the way here. On hearing this, Pilate asked if the man was a Galilean. When he learned that Jesus was under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased, because for a long time he had been wanting to see him. From what he had heard about him, he hoped to see him perform a sign of some sort. He plied him with many questions, but Jesus gave him no answer. The chief priests and the teachers of the law were standing there, vehemently accusing him. Then Herod and his soldiers ridiculed and mocked him. Dressing him in an elegant robe, they sent him back to Pilate. That day, Herod and Pilate became friends. Before this, they had been enemies. Pilate called together the chief priests, the rulers, and the people and said to them, You brought me this man as one who was inciting the people to rebellion. I have examined him in your presence and have found no basis for your charges against him. Neither is Herod, for he sent him back to us. As you can see, he has done nothing to deserve death. Therefore, I will punish him and then release him. But the whole crowd shouted, Away with this man! Release Barabbas to us! Barabbas had been thrown into prison for an insurrection in the city and for murder. Wanting to release Jesus, Pilate appealed to them again. But they kept shouting, Crucify him! Crucify him! For the third time he spoke to them, Why? What crime has this man committed? I have found in him no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore, I will have him punished and then release him. But with loud shouts, they insistently demanded that he be crucified, and their shouts prevailed. So Pilate decided to grant their demand. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, the one they asked for, and surrendered Jesus to their will. As the soldiers led him away, they seized Simon from Cyrene, who was on his way in from the country, and put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. A large number of people followed him, including women who mourned and wailed for him. Jesus turned and said to them, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. For the time will come when you will say, Blessed are the childless women 
the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, Cover us. For if people do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, they crucified him there, along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is God's Messiah, the Chosen One. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. It was now about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon, for the sun stopped shining, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last. The centurion, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, Surely this was a righteous man. When all the people who had gathered to witness this sight saw what took place, they beat their breasts and went away. But all those who knew him, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. Thousands of years ago, the author of the book of Ecclesiastes penned these words. Remember you are dust, and to dust you will return. Remember your own mortality. Remember death. But why? Death is a morbid thought. It brings great sadness. And in reality, all the voices around us speak a different message don't they? Whether it's pundits or scholars or even preachers, we hear words like, feel good about yourself. Think positive thoughts. Eat, drink, enjoy life. Think about goals and what you can achieve. Why think about death? But ironically, the gospel, the good news, actually calls us to remember death. The entire series of events in the gospels, especially in the book of Mark, begin to slow down as they approach the end of Jesus' life. 
They seem to be drawn out to emphasize his impending death. As a matter of fact, in John's Gospel, more than half of the Gospel is comprised of episodes and teachings that prepare the disciples for Christ's death. The miracles at the end of these Gospels become fewer and almost fade from view. Even the narrative of the triumphal entry, Palm Sunday, that we so celebrate every year and did last Sunday, even on that occasion, Jesus focused on the destruction of the city. When the crowds were joyful upon his arrival, he uttered these words, They will build up an embankment against you on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and your children, within your walls. The theme of death is heavy in the Gospels, each of them near the end. And on Good Friday, traditionally, the church has called us to remember death. We remember as a body of Christ the Last Supper. This is my body, says Jesus. This is my blood. The blood of the new covenant poured out for many. Death. Jesus used the sacred meal of Passover in the Jewish tradition to emphasize and predict his own death. He even warns them of a moment that's very close to happening right then in which they will betray him. And it will lead predictably and rapidly to his death. Here he says to them, celebrate the Passover with me, disciples. Take this bread and eat it. Take this cup and drink it. Take it, Matthew. Take it, Mark. Celebrate my coming death, Luke and John. Share with me my last meal, Judas. Perhaps in his mind, he says, my death approaches, Judas, and you'll be responsible for it. But now, eat with me. I await that kiss that will deliver me to death. We remember the garden at Good Friday, the place where the spiritual weight pressed in upon his soul to such an extent that he sweat great drops of blood. Even though God, he suffered like a man. It was here that the weight of separation, the impending weight of separation, that fractures the Godhead was a dark reality that pressed in upon Jesus. Of course, the separation was caused by sin. 
And it was our sins that were causing that separation. On Good Friday, we remember the crucifixion. I'd like for you, just for a moment, to consider the contrast between the deaths that you have witnessed, friends or family, and the death that will inevitably be yours. Such a contrast to Jesus' death. Our deaths are often in a quiet, private place with family and friends at our side, singing, praying, sharing stories, expressing love. I've been there at many of those bedsides. But the death of Jesus was different. It was public. He was naked before the whole world. It was a gruesome death of thirst and bleeding and suffocation and slow agony. But the insults during the time of his death that were hurled at him somehow mysteriously were absorbed in his death. The sins of those who passed by, those sins were absorbed in his death. Remarkably, the sins that he absorbed that day on the cross were absorbed because of forgiveness. All of this is summarized in those incredible words of Jesus on the cross. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. We remember his death, but we also remember the reason for his death. It was not random. It was carefully planned by the will of the divine community of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It was not purposeless. It was the purpose that the divine Trinity established before time to accomplish the redemption of the world through the death of God's Son. It was not a singular tragedy, as many deaths are. It was actually a cosmic triumph because it crushed the hold of death and destroyed it forever. The words of the Apostle Paul come to mind, death, where is your victory? Grave, where is your sting? No, his death was not without focus. Instead, the focus was Christ bearing the sins of the world in his own body on the tree. The reason for his death was to make satisfaction for sin. Your sin. And my sin. And the sins of the whole world. In the words of the prophet Isaiah, surely... He took up our infirmities and he carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. 
but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought our peace was upon him, and with his wounds we are healed. Finally, we we remember that his death was also ours. His cross was our cross. The tradition of Good Friday in the church has been carefully established to remember Christ's death. Our, Our tendency is to race ahead to the resurrection. Our tendency is to race ahead to the birth of Jesus. But you see, the church historically has invited us to vicariously walk with those first disciples until Resurrection Day on Sunday. Walk with them through the valley of the shadow of death and remember. Walk with them through the grief and the loss and the confusion and the anger and the doubt. All of these are present. And we are invited to walk in them. On Good Friday, the gospel, the good news, says pause and remember his death. Confess, believe, trust, and follow. He died for our sins. He carried our cross. Remember and be thankful.